Hi everyone and welcome to Heroes and Howlers and the Rest is History. I'm Mikey Robbins. I'm a bit of a history nerd, but my mate Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody. Paul's a proper historian, all the way from Oxford. Thanks, Mikey. Okay, folks, so here's the show. It's about the unsung heroes, the bizarre twists of fate, those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. Yeah, actually, mate, it's also about the cock ups. <laughs> yeah. Those howlers, the moments of madness, they're sometimes tragic, sometimes comical, that have made the world what it is today. Hey folks, and welcome to uh, episode two of season three. And this one, it's one of the big ones. We're going to be looking at, well, he's known as the bad boy of history. You love him. You're a little bit scared of him. We're going to be talking about Attila the Hun. That's right, Mikey. Yeah, Attila the Hun uh, really is one of those uh, bad boys. But I think he's actually been a little bit misrepresented uh, over the years. Um, yeah, look, he was the first person uh, to call himself the old flagellum dei, the scourge of God. And obviously he was keen to have a bit of a reputation. Um, but I think that Attila, you know, and all his Huns, you know, they're seen in history as that epitome of the, you know, the Asian step nomad, the ugly squat horseman, you know, looting and raping his way across Europe. And of course, um, in many ways, he's been blamed for destroying civilization, hasn't he? You know, um, end of the Roman Empire and plunging Europe into the Dark Ages. But I think, you know, this use of the Hun um, is a little bit unfair. Well, actually, mate, let's not forget the idea of you know, the Hun as an insult. I mean, that was used during World War One by by the British and their allies against the Germans as a way of sort of emphasising barbarous, unsportsmanlike opponents with no sense of honour, justice or fair play. Well, that is, that's, that's right, Mikey, exactly right. Yeah, um, and that's what Huns have come to represent in all the history books, isn't it? But um, I think, yeah, to get to the heart of this, you've really just got to go back a bit further. The Huns are, uh, we're talking the 5th century AD, but I want to start off a bit further back um, and a bit further eastwards, actually, uh, back in the second century uh, BC, um, back over on the Mongolian steppes, because the, these big steppe nomad uh, tribes, that's where they all came from. And the first ones were the Xiong Nu. Now, these guys, they were operating, as I said, about second, first uh, century BC. They were invading northern China. They were pushing into Central Asia. Um, and they, you know, they were really giving the Chinese a run for their money. Um, and of course, you know, within their conglomerate, if you like, there were also other tribes who were pushing and shoving, trying to get their little bit of sunshine. You've got, you got the Shenbei, the Ruran, the Wusun, the UAZ. In turn, these smaller tribes, they would try and get their 15 minutes of fame. They'd get their own territory and they'd push uh, south into China or west into Central Asia. And some of them, you know, like the Kushan, would even push as far as northern India. But, but are the Huns the same as them? Well, yes, some of them were. Um, you know, you got the splinter groups like the you know, the, the Kianites and the Kidarites and the Hephthalites, who are the, the White Hun. Um, and yes, you know, they would uh, charge down um, into Central Asia in the same way. But the main body, the main body of the Huns, they actually stuck further north. They stuck to the steppe proper if you like, above the Caspian and the Black Seas. You know, you've got your Pontic step, you've got your Russian step. Um, and from there, you know, going into the Ukraine, of course, you know, next stop, Europe proper. So, mate, bring us up to the 5th century AD. Okay, right. So the Huns, as I said, they've got through the Ukraine. They're into 
Eastern Europe. Um, and of course, you know, you did, they didn't get this far. They didn't become the top dog tribe um, without being pretty good at what they were doing. And they were doing this under their great leader, Alden. And under Alden, you know, these weren't just the most successful uh, tribe. Uh, dare I say it, they're also the most sophisticated. Because you might not realize this, Mikey, but people like Attila, you know, he actually had a very privileged upbringing. Yeah, we're not talking about the the great unwashed, the uneducated barbarian at all. We're talking about the most powerful family north of the Danube. You know, you know, uh, got Attila's uncles who are Oktar and Rugula. They jointly rule the Hun Empire in the 420s, 430s AD. And they build this fantastic uh, sort of multicultural coalition um, of warrior tribes. You know, it's not just one ethnicity. They bring everybody on board. Yeah, in fact, Mikey, in terms of, you know, this period of the, the later Roman Empire, you know, they're as impressive a player as anyone on the European stage. And they, they actually got it down to a fine art in terms of playing Western Rome and their emperors off on one hand and joining them on campaigns and stealing their booty. And then on the other side, playing off the Eastern Romes and extracting tribute and payments in return for keeping the peace. So um, how does this East Rome, West Rome thing actually work? Yeah, well, a good question, Mikey, because obviously, you know, um, we don't get the fall of Rome until afterwards until 476 but by this stage the empire has split up you know by the end of the fourth century after constantine um, the west uh, rome and byzantium in the east um, they have become separate powers um, and unfortunately in the west you actually have a very very weak situation where you've got provincial generals and armies running all over the place um, of course you had the sack of Rome back in 410 when the Alaric and his Goths and his Visigoths and his Alans they all came in oh hang on that's the story about Honorius and the chickens which is actually not quite true but the story is that Honorius the emperor he'd actually left Rome and moved to Ravenna now, he was famous for keeping chickens and poultry and pigeons. Well, the story goes that when the messenger from Rome, who was one of his eunuchs, turns up at Ravenna and he tells Honorius that Roma has been destroyed, well, the emperor thinks he's talking about his favourite chicken called Roma. And his words are, but I just fed him. And then the messenger goes, no, they've actually destroyed the city. Exactly, that's right, Mikey. Yeah, and it's important to remember that yeah, four ten. That's we're not talking about Attila there. We're not talking about the Huns. But of course, by this stage, the Huns have forced the Goths and the Visigoths across the Danube, pushing them down towards the Roman Empire itself. Uh, and in many ways, mate, this triggers the biggest domino effect in history. Okay, folks, we're in the early 400s, around about the 430s. So, Paul, what's happening with Attila the Hun? All right, so we are actually 434 now, and that's the death of Rugila. That's Attila's um, uncle. Um, and that means that Attila and his brother Bleeder, they become the joint rulers. Yeah, they become in charge of the whole of the Hunnic Empire. Now, yeah, as we've said before, you know, <laughs> they've been vilified over the over the centuries as these marauding animals. But in actual fact, you know, both Attila and his brother, they spoke and they read Latin and they've been trained in the military, they trained in diplomacy. Now, sure, you know, they didn't have a, a fancy capital um, on the Hungarian plains you know, like Rome or, or any of the, the great Roman cities, but they were extremely wealthy. Um, and we've got these amazing uh, archaeological digs 
for example, the one at uh, Piotrza um, in Romania and these Hun hordes um, that they discovered there. You know, these really was a very, very wealthy empire. These were very, very wealthy men. And, you know, they were very sophisticated men. They, they, they would entertain Roman ambassadors. They would send embassies themselves to Rome for visits like that. So what you're saying is they're not no-holds-barred warmongers. Exactly. And the first move that both Attila and his brother actually make is to ensure that peace, not war, with Eastern Rome um, is solidified and consolidated. And they sit down with Emperor Theodosius II um, of Eastern Rome and they do a deal with him whereby for £700 of gold annually, they'll ensure not only that they keep the peace, but they also protect his northern borders. Hang on, mate, you're saying Theodosius II. Now, if I know anything, it's that you wouldn't buy a second-hand chariot from a Byzantine emperor. <laughs> That's right, Mikey, yeah. And sure enough, in 441, Theodosius does actually violate that treaty, and that is why Attila is forced to attack. You know, it's not him going on the offensive, it's just because, yeah, he's been stabbed in the back by Theodosius. Now, don't get me wrong, Attila's pretty good at attacking, and he gets to within 30 kilometres um, of Constantinople, and sure enough, he, he forces Theo Theodosius into new terms, yeah, whereby he's got to pay 2,100 pounds of gold annually to keep the peace. Um, but, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that's not really Attila's fault. Yeah, but, but of course, mate, here's Attila the Hun. He was no saint, was he? Well, that's true, Mac. You know, in 445, he does kill his brother. Um, he does grab absolute power for himself. Uh, and he follows it up in 447 uh, by storming the Balkans, first of all, uh, and, and then pushing even further down into Greece. And in fact, he's only ever stopped um, by the a, a great battle at Thermopylae, which, uh, you know, you might remember and listeners might remember, of course, yeah. is, is where Sparta and the 300 um, stopped, stopped the Persians. But here's the question, mate. The guy only rules for a very short time. I'm talking about a tool of the Hun here. So why has he cast such a long shadow on history? He actually only reigns for eight years as a sole ruler. Um, but I think the problem is, you know, particularly later on in the Renaissance, um, you've got the Europeans and they're looking back at the classical antiquity, they're looking at the fall of Rome, they see it as the big disaster uh, where everything went wrong and they really want to blame someone. And of course, <laughs> they don't want to blame themselves as Rome's European descendants. They'd much rather blame an outsider, an outside force. So they gather up all the blame, all the guilt, and lay it squarely at the feet of Attila. Yes, mate, I, I will take that on board. But also, too, didn't he make a couple of rather nasty incursions into France and Italy? Yes, OK, right, OK. We're talking about the invasions of 450, 453. And yes, they did wreak havoc across the heart of the Roman Empire. But even this one, Mikey, actually, is, is, is quite interesting because as far as the history books tell us, in many ways, all he's trying to do is defend the honour and satisfy the honour of a Roman princess, um, a lady by the name of Honoria. Now, Honoria, she was the sister of the Western Rome Emperor Valentinian III. And she has been a little bit disappointed by her brother because what the old Valentinian said, he's trying to do a bit of matchmaking and he wants her to marry this guy called Senator Bassus Herculanus. Now, Senator Bassus Herculanus, the idea is that they'll cement this little family alliance and strengthen Valentinian's position. But 
he's a dud, right, Mikey? He's a real dud. <laughs> and Honoria, she said, I don't want to have any, anything to do with him. So she sends her engagement ring that Bassus has given her, she sends it to Attila. Now, we don't know for sure whether this was a request for aid or whether it was a marriage proposal. <laughs> but, you know, as you can imagine, Attila, he saw it as the, the green light and you don't need to ask a man like that twice. So off he goes, he's on campaign. Um, and I think, you know, this is when the, the myth and the legend really starts to build. And this is where, in the words of the Roman historian Jordan, is a man born into the world to shake the nations. So, okay, Paul, he's, he's invaded Gaul, the, the heart of the empire. We're, we're talking slaughter, we're talking devastation, right? That's right. But you've got to remember, Mikey, the, that Europe at this stage, you know, by the middle of the 5th century, it's already in pretty much tatters. Western Rome is a dog's dinner, you know, in many ways, like I said, with these provincial generals and armies running around all over the place. Um, so you can't really blame Attila for wanting to get involved and he actually offers to and he says that he and Honoria they together they will take over half of the empire and they will restore law and they will restore order um, but of course you know the uh, <laughs> Roman emperors aren't going to accept that and that's where we get to 451 and the battle of the Catalonian plains now, uh, I say Catalonian there, Mikey, because it's not um, yeah. Catalonia as in Barcelona. We're talking Catalonian plains just outside Paris. Um, and this really is an epic in terms of battle. Okay, so we're on the battlefield and with 200,000 men. Mikey, they think, take the field that day. Um, now, <laughs> we've had quite a few cock-ups in terms of battles on these series. Uh, but this one, it's not a cock-up, Mikey, but it is the bloodiest battle, probably the bloodiest battle in ancient Europe. On one side, you've got Attila and all his Huns. On the other side, you've got the Roman commander Flavius Aetius. Uh, and that's quite interesting itself because he actually was an ally of Attila. Um, they were in an alliance and he stabs Attila in the back by forming another alliance with King Theodoric uh, I of the Visigoths. Um, so again, you know, you can you can argue the case that <laughs> all Attila's trying to do is, is stick by the rules and he's getting let down left, right and centre. Uh, but anyway, so Theodoric is killed um, and Attila does withdraw. And this actually goes down as his only major defeat on the battlefield. But he's not done yet, is he, mate? No, that's right. He simply regathers his forces. And then the following year, he's straight back. This time he's um, invading Italy. Um, he's also invading um, the East. But unfortunately for him, for the first time in a long time, Eastern Rome and Western Rome finally get their act together. Finally, the emperors trust each other enough to form a combined force. And they go into this attack-defence manoeuvre um, so that by 453... He's actually driven back to lick his wounds beyond the Danube. And, <laughs> and the typical Attila, his way of licking the wounds, he decides to have another wedding, another, uh, another bride. And this is when the famous lady of Ildico comes into the story. Yes, and I've got a good story about this and, and the, the tragedy that was his wedding night. And it's actually got to do with the derivation of our, our modern word, honeymoon. There was an old Germanic habit or, or practice which, which spread through Europe. And the idea was that a, a month before you got married, you drank a, a drink called um, Hydromel, which is basically what we used to drink at uni called mead, 
which is wine, herbs, and honey. And you would drink that for a month to provoke virility in a man and fertility in the woman. So that's a month of drinking a honey-based drink, Honey Moon. Well, Attila, who was considerably older than his bride, he must have had a little bit of performance anxiety, dare I say, on the wedding day. And, well, he smashed the old hydromol. He went pretty hard. In, in, in the morning, they actually they, they found him dead. That's right, Mikey. Uh, he dies on his wedding night, unfortunately. We're not sure exactly of his age, probably about 50. Um, and <laughs> there's that great quote from Gibbon, isn't there? An archery had suddenly burst. And as Attila lay in a supine posture, he was suffocated by a torrent of blood, which instead of finding a passage through his nostrils, regurgitated into his lungs and stomach. And unfortunately, yeah, he's basically drowned on his own blood and vomit. Uh, but I, I do think it's a little bit harsh, you know, because that story has given rise to this idea that he was the decadent, um, you know, gorging himself. But actual fact, in many ways, he he lived quite modestly because even the, the Roman ambassadors at the time would describe that at these great big dinner parties, he would often just sit in the corner and humbly eat his dinner from a wooden platter while everyone around him would indulge themselves on the finest silver. And again, mate, that really brings us back round to where we began with the myth and the legend of Attila growing out of the Roman sources and the European sources. You know, history is <laughs> always written by the winners and it was very much in the Romans and the Renaissance interest um, to paint Attila as, as black as they could. But at the same time, I think you've got to admit that they were at least impressed with Attila. Um, and you've got that lovely account from Priscus, the uh, Roman diplomat who talks about the, the day after uh, Attila's death, after that wedding night. And he, he tell, describes how the whole army grieves and smears their faces in blood and thousands of horsemen ride in circles and circles around the great tent of their leader. And then Attila's body is buried in three coffins inside each other, first iron, then silver, and then gold. And he's buried in a tomb with weapons of his enemies and jewels and all his treasure. And then the final story that really seals his legend status in folklore, that little bit of magic <laughs> that you always need um, to go down in history as one of the greats. So Priscus tells us they actually divert a river on the Hungarian plain to expose the riverbed, dig it up, bury his body in a tomb under the riverbed, and then divert the river back so it's flooded, floods over um, his tomb and his grave can never be found. Today we're talking about the legend of Attila the Hun. Now, Attila has just died. So, Paul, is this the, the decline, the end of the Huns? Well, that's a good question, Mikey, because um, actually the Huns do stay and dominate the Hungarian plains for a good while longer, hence, you know, the, the word hung Gary, uh, but um, they are superseded in history, aren't they? You know, they've got these new waves of nomad invaders coming from the east. You've got the Turks coming over for centuries, and then, of course, you've got the Mongols as well. But the Huns and Attila, yeah, they still remain very much iconic names, don't they? You know, yeah, and why is that, Paul? I'm, I'm sort of guessing it's got to do with the whole context of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire. And that's exactly right, Mike, yeah, because, you know, the decline and fall of the Roman Empire is one of the biggies. <laughs> we'll probably need another episode if we want to talk about it but the, uh, the main gist of it has always been you know, was it because 
Rome was eaten away from the inside? Was this there this moral slide, or was it the external factors? Was it the invaders, uh, people like Attila? And I think personally, I think that Attila and his Huns, yeah, they were a massive impact um, on the Roman Empire. They they were a major reason. Uh, why the empire fell, um, and and also I think in many ways they they're just another example of how um, we all think in the West that the Europeans were by far superior, but in many ways you know Europe was still uh, not a match for Asia, at least not as much as it presumed it was. Which actually gets back to one of your favourite points, mate, which is Mark Antony in the East. And that's right, Mikey. You know, and I think yeah, if there's any final proof that we need on this, um, you know, I was talking about this Roman commander Flavius Aetius. Yeah, he's probably remembered and most revered um, as one of the great Roman commanders in the last 200 years of the Roman Empire. In, in fact, Gibbon calls him the last of the Romans. Um, now, Flavius Aetius, as a teenager, he was actually sent as a hostage to the courts um, of these um, invaders. First of all, he went to Uldin, the king of the Huns. Then he went to Alaric's court, the king of the Visigoths. Um, and a lot of the contemporary observers in Rome, the people who supported Flavius Aetius, they said he was such a great commander because of his upbringing amongst the militaristic peoples um, of the north because of their martial vigour. That's what made him the standout Roman general of his generation. So, mate, Attila the Hun, hero? Well, yeah, look, I'm, I'm happy to put him down as a hero, Mike. You know, for me, he's Attila the Great. You know, he's up there with Alexander. And even Gibbon in his, you know, let's face it, definitive account of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, even Gibbon says that Attila was glorious in his life, invincible in death, the father of his people, the scourge of his enemies, and the terror of the world. I don't know about you, Mikey, but I wouldn't mind that on my epitaph. And it's not just historians like Gibbon Paul. Sung Tzu's The Art of War and Machiavelli's The Prince, they're studied by tycoons. Well, Bill Madden, who wrote the biography of George Steinbrenner, talks about how the New York Yankees owner studied Attila's life and campaigns for invaluable insights and business strategies. Well, that's right, Mikey, exactly. So there you go, folks. That's the end of the episode. Any questions about barbarians, steppe nomads, fall of the Roman Empire? Yeah. Any questions you got on that? Or does anyone else remember drinking mead at university? <laughs> all right, folks, there you go. Drop us a line on all your social media using the handle at and the rest is hist. And the rest is hist. And you can find all that stuff in the show notes. Okay. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to like, subscribe and comment, you know, whichever platforms you usually use. Which brings us to next week and a story that's very close to my heart. Forget the art of war. This is the art of dishwashing. Mm-hmm.